That's always my favorite question to ask. It was always the, the oh, dude, really? Are they broke? Or is it just jammed? Okay, she held up fingers that are all bandaged. <laughs> uh, but my number one rule when I was a youth pastor, every no matter what we did, number one rule all the time was don't get hurt. That was all, and if you broke that rule, I sent you home. Like, that's just how, that's how it was in my youth group. Um, but now, nowadays in my church, number one rule, I tell everybody, just don't get sick. Like, that's your, that's the number one rule. You're not allowed to get sick. Keep that somewhere else, all right? Um, but that, so who, who were the two guys that ran into the giant ball? Are they still here? Or do they like, oh, that was you guys? Right on. Well done, boys. Well done. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say that, but that's, I mean, I would expect nothing less. Way to go, you know. If I see a big ball, I'm going to run at it also, you know. That's what you do. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, I hope you guys still have a lot of energy. I still feel like I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty stoked, still feel like I got a lot of energy. Um, this has been a really long week for me. Um, I haven't really shared a ton about, what, about what's going on with me, but this week I was actually in school all all day, and then I came and hung out with you guys. So I, I was I was in class on Zoom, which drains me. It's like the worst thing in the world. Um, but so I got through all that, and then I'd come hang out with you guys. But I'm done now. I'm done, and I feel really good about that. I have one more class to go for my degree, and that is really really exciting. So I'm I'm pumped. I feel really good. But when I have long, like draining weeks like that, and it was, it was exhausting. Um, I have this thing that I do, and like I'm away from my family. You know, I've been gone from my family since Monday. I haven't seen them. I have this kind of tradition thing that I do. I don't know if it's good or if it's bad. I don't know if it helps me or it makes things worse. But um, I, I scroll through my pictures. Uh, when, when I'm missing my family a lot, when I'm tired, um, and, I, and I'm not really sure, like, I, I know it motivates me, it makes me happy to see their faces, it makes me sad, but it also kind of motivates me to keep going, like, okay, I'm going to be with them to, again real, real soon, um, and so I thought tonight I'd show you one of the pictures this week that I've been looking at of my family, uh, this is them. This is, this is my awesome, awesome family. I love them a lot. That's my wife, Jamie, in that hat she made me buy for her that I don't necessarily approve of. Uh, and then next to her is uh, Mercy. You'll notice she has sunglasses, a headband, and a, a very glittery purse. That is absolutely her personality. She is my fancy kid. I don't know how they end up that way. Um, and then the big girl sitting up there, that's my, my big girl. Her name's Emissary. She has her backpack on. That is actually her spy kit. So she has like a full-blown spy kit, magnifying glass, notes to take down and stuff like that. I think that's pretty darn cool. And then that crazy kid on the bottom there is Jubilee. She's my four-year-old, and she is a nut. I do not know how she ended up so bananas, but she is. She is, she is absolutely insane, and I have a lot of stories about her. So that's my family. And, and I look at these guys throughout these weeks when I'm sad or when I'm tired, and I just kind of remind myself, like, okay, pretty soon, like, we're going to be back together. That's where, where, where the end of this week is will always be them, me snuggling them on the couch or watching a movie or something like that. Um, and so I think pictures help us to do that. They help to motivate. They help to um, kind of keep us moving along. Last night, I shared a picture with you guys. God, God does this a lot. 
God gives us pictures, and, and someone said it tonight. The, the guy, I didn't catch your name, that was standing right here, that's one of the things he said was the reason that God, God could have communicated who he is in so many different ways, but he chose to write it down so that we could visualize, so that we could actually know and remember not only what he's like, but who we are in Jesus. And I shared one of these pictures with you last night. It's a picture that God has painted for us. It's a picture that I want you guys to have at least memorized, like it, not, not necessarily word for word, but like the picture. I want you to have it like ingrained in your brain before this week is over because it's the thing. It's the picture that God painted for us to keep us going when the chaos is just a little too crazy for us. This is the picture. It comes from Revelation chapter seven. I read, to, read it to you guys last night. Remember when I was talking about swimming and it's like you lift up and the fog, you lift your eyes up and the fog moves away and this is what you see. This is the picture. It says, this is, this is the apostle John and this is the picture that God painted through the apostle John to show us where we're heading. He first said, after this, I looked and behold. And I like that because what he says there when he says behold, like I looked over there, behold, look at it. He's not thinking theoretically. He's not saying, hey man, you know what would be really cool is if, and then like describe something really cool. He's all, no, this is the thing that I saw. This is the thing that I'm promising you is there. And he says, there's a great multitude of people that no one could number. Oh, that's good news. That's really good news. A multitude of people that nobody could number. You know why that's good news? It's because that person in your life right now that you think, no, nah, there's no way they could ever trust in Jesus. They're too hard-hearted. They're too far gone. They're, that means when I read a multitude of people, what I see in that is, man, there's gonna be so many people there that we would have never expected to be there. People that we would have never imagined place their faith in Jesus. So that's just my encouragement to you. Keep praying. Keep sharing Jesus with them because there's going to be a multitude that no one could number. And what will they be like? Well, they'll be from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages. That means there's going to be thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people there that look nothing like you, that sound nothing like us. There'll be people there that we've never even seen a type of person like that, and they're going to be gathered around shoulder to shoulder with us, standing before the throne, meaning he's king, and before the lamb, that is Christ, and we are all clothed in white robes. You know why? Because there's no more sin. Because there's no more sin. We're washed clean, all of it gone and it's gone forever clean in white robes and we're standing around crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our god not his god over there not this god they made up over here not this god that i kind of think i might have heard about no our god one god true god all of us worshiping him salvation belongs to our god who is king and to christ the lamb and then he says for the lamb in the midst of the throne, Jesus is going to be our shepherd and he's going to guide us to springs of living water and God will wipe away every, say every, every tear from their eyes. 
You know what that means? That doesn't just mean you're going to get like your tear ducts are going to get wiped away. What he means is there's not going to be any more reason to cry. There's not going to be another reason for you to weep. There's not going to be any more sickness or loneliness or depression or anxiety, frustration, pain, sadness, sickness, death, gone, wiped away by the very hand of God. And God paints this picture for us, for you and me. He paints it, and he paints it vividly. You guys see all the, I tried to make it our way through it, pointing out some of these details. He paints it this way so that we can picture it, so that we know what we're looking forward to. This is a vision of heaven. This is the vision of the future of all God's people, but it is also our hope now, now. This is, this is the hope we live in right now. This vision of our future unity is meant to fuel our effort towards present unity. We're supposed to see that and say, I want that now. Maybe it'll be, maybe it'll be bumps and it'll be bruised and it won't be perfect, but I want that now. I want to see that now. The future gathering of all kinds of different people is meant to inspire the present gathering of all kinds of different people now. This picture and knowing that we will one day be there is meant to draw us together here. Do you see that? It's like, man, if I'm going to spend eternity with you crying out to our God together, man, I want to be with you now. And this is God's picture. But there is another artist who does not so much paint anything himself. He's actually a copycat. He exists rather to destroy God's artwork. The devil is an artist himself. Now, let me ask you and just just imagine this and you can answer this to yourself. If you were the devil... Theoretically, right, hypothetical, no accusations. I'm not accusing you of anything. But if you were the devil, how would you effectively, effectively ruin God's beautiful picture of our future unity? That picture that he paints in Revelation 7, how would you ruin that? How would you get our minds off of that picture? One of the most effective ways would be division, wouldn't it? Because if God gives us that picture of heaven in Revelation 7, and it's meant to fuel us and give us energy and keep us going now, the best thing that he could do was to rip us apart right now so that we can't even picture that. There's no way that could possibly be true. We hate each other too much right now. That would be his method. Divide us up, split us all up, keep us from being together, and you know what? Just settle for it. Just settle for it. It seems too hard. It seems too difficult. It seems too uncomfortable. That'd be one of the best ways to destroy this painting of God. Now, next question. If you were the devil, what would you use to divide the church? And honestly, the answer to that question is whatever, right? Like, you, what would you care? Who cares how you divide up the church just as long as it gets the job done? And that's the thing. He will take whatever we give to him, you, right? 
What, what, what is the devil's plan after he divides us up? Nothing. That's the plan. And if we ever, if, he, if it works, he'll move on. If we ever find ourselves coming back together, all oh, pay attention because right then is when he's coming back to divide us up all over again. That's the plan. And he'll use whatever we give him. He will accept all ammunition. He does not care. So if division is one of the devil's primary attacks against God's people, I think if we look around right now in the world that we right now live in, I'd say he's doing a pretty good job, wouldn't you? I'd, I'd say as I look around the world today, he's probably pretty happy with his efforts, right? It feels like he has us right where he wants us. That's why I need you to know this theme of together matters. It's urgent. This is a full-blown pushback of what the devil's trying to do out there and is succeeding. This is full-blown war coming around this theme of together. Because if I'm honest right now, and let's be honest, it's pretty overwhelming right now, man. The notifications I get on my phone, they just feel like they're relentless right now. Just every one of them feels like a punch to the gut. Everything seems so broken, so messed up. Everybody looks so angry, so frustrated, so afraid. Everybody is so against everybody else, and they feel good about it. Everybody feels right. We've like forgotten that everybody can't be right. And it all feels hopeless. It all feels impossible. It's like looking, standing at the base of a mountain, knowing that there is no way that you could actually climb it. And you know what? Good. Good. Because that is exactly why we need to come to the passage that we're going to look at tonight. Because this passage teaches us that if we want real unity, we must pray for it. We must pray for it. Look with me, if you would, at verse 5 and 6 in Romans 15. This is my favorite part. This is the most most impactful part of this passage to me is these two verses. They're powerful to me. Look at what... So so Paul spends verse 1 through 3 telling us how we should love each other, right? You know, strong for the weak. And then he says, all of us for one another. Then he says, Jesus did that. Be like Jesus, chapter or verse four. He said, he's given us the scriptures for endurance and for encouragement. But then in verse five and six, he just stops and he prays. He just stops. Like, like it, it feels abrupt. He just stops and prays this prayer. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement, grant you, and that's a grace word, that's a root in grace, grant you to live in such harmony or, or unity or, or think the same with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together, say together, yes. that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's my favorite part of this passage, man. I love this part. So what brought about this whole conversation in chapter 15? I told you guys two nights ago, it, it, what brought it about was chapter 14, and what's going on in chapter 14 is division, but not division out there, not chaos out there, division inside the church. It's exactly what Jen talked about tonight, is that the devil doesn't have to just get us out there. He can come right in here and divide us up from within. That's exactly what was going on in Romans 14. And the, their division was specific. It was over religious practices of over what food they could eat or what day was special, if they were special or if they were all the same. And that's where the division was coming. But really, that division was a symptom of a greater, deeper division in the church. Hang with me here. This church in Rome was made up of Jews and Gentiles. That's what most of the book of Romans is about, of showing them that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is for both of them. The, the thesis statement of the whole book is Paul saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, right? Because it is the power of God for salvation for anybody who believes. Then what does he say? Right? Amen. Amen. For the Jew first, also for the Greek. And then he just unloads 11 chapters telling you how that works. So that's, that's who's in this church. But these guys could not be more different. Their, their backgrounds couldn't be more different. They looked different. Their politics were different. Their religions were different. Everything about them. Not only that, on top of that, they spent thousands of years hating each other. The Jews believed that all non-Jews were not clean. They couldn't be in the same room with them, let alone worship with them. And Paul is showing them again and again, no, the gospel brings you guys together. And you guys, this is one of the primary methods that the devil will use for our division, for your division in both our culture and in our churches. He uses our differences. He points them out to us. Whether it's our preferences, you're like, oh man, you don't like that, well, I do like that. We, we gotta separate you prefer that? Well, I don't like that. Forget that. We're separated. We can't be together. Or, you know, maybe he doesn't use uh, our, our preferences, but maybe he uses our backgrounds. Oh, you're from where? You live where? You've been through what? No, I can't, I can't hang with that. That's not me, right? No, I, I can't relate to that. That's different than where I come from. We can't be together. You stay over there. Or our social status, Oh, man, you got a little too much money. I can't relate to nothing that you got. I'm going to stay over here with all my poor folks, right? Or no, I'm a little too middle class to hang out with that group over there, right? Oh, well, no matter what it is, all the way down to what we look like, he'll take whatever we give him. And you know what's beautiful, though, is we are different, Right? That we are different. He's not pointing out something. He's not lying to us. I, I'm different than you. You're different than me. And that is meant to be that way. That's beautiful. But the devil comes and says, no, no, no. 
divide up. No, no, no. You're too different. Too different. You should not like each other. And he has used this, you guys, pointing out our differences since the beginning of the church. This has been his method. And why not? Division comes naturally to us as humans. Do you know that? This is just what humans do. We divide ourselves up, right? We're selfish. We're arrogant. This is just the bent that we have. The bend that we have is we, we're just immediately, we want to look down on somebody, right? If I got a little bit more than you, I'm real quick to look down on you, right? And this just comes so naturally to us as humans. And if they take their eyes off of Christ, this is what Christians do too. And they have done forever, since the beginning. And I mean since the beginning. Acts chapter 6. They're distributing food to widows. And when the Greek background widows come to get food, they don't give them any. Because instead, they give food to the Hebrew widows. They say, no, you're not getting any. We're going to give these guys priority. That's the beginning. Acts chapter 6, James. James is a book, probably the oldest letter in the New Testament. And in the book of James, he's having to correct them because when people are coming into church, they're saying, hey, you're poor. Sit on the floor. Oh, you got money. Have this special seat. That's, the, that's from the beginning of the church. Them saying, hey, poor people, you sit on the floor. Rich people get special seats in our, in our church. And in just about every paragraph of every letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, he's trying to convince Jews and non-Jews that they're one church, that they're one body in Christ, especially, most thoroughly, in this book of Romans. He spends 11 chapters of the thickest theology in the New Testament and then he spends four more chapters explaining to them in chapters 12 through 15, saying, this is how that gospel works that I just explained to you in 11 chapters. Even in these last four verses that we've already looked at, he told them how to love each other and that they have the scriptures. But it's as if he knows it's not enough. Those 11 chapters, not enough. Chapter 12 through 15, not enough. It's not going to be enough. It's as if he knows that if it was left up to us, it would never happen. Unity would be impossible. He, it's as if he stops after verse 4 and he says, you know what? I'm saying all of this stuff. I'm explaining to them all of this stuff. But they can't do it. They can't, they, it doesn't matter if they memorize everything that I've already said. They can't do it. And so he stops and he prays. He stops and he prays for them. So overwhelmed with what it was that he was calling for them to do, knowing that they can't do it on their own, he prays. And I think that's significant. And so I wanna, I wanna talk, uh, I wanna ask two questions about this prayer, okay? The first question is actually not even like this, like in the verses themselves, I mean a little bit, but it's this question. What does a prayer for unity demonstrate? What, I mean, like, what I mean by that is, what does it teach us that Paul prays to God asking that they would live in unity with one another? 
Because I think we learned some stuff from that. And forgive me if these are like painfully obvious, okay? But bear with me because I, this is the part that has made the most impact on me in studying these two verses. What does it teach us that Jesus or that Paul prayed for unity? The first thing is, is we must desire unity. That's the first thing. He wants unity for them, so he asks for it, right? I know, that's ridiculously obvious, right? He prays for unity because he wants them to have unity, and he's praying to God for it because he wants it for them. Listen to me. Okay, if you're a note taker, write this line down and think about it. Okay, you will not be consistent in asking for something that you don't genuinely want. If you want unity, you'll pray for it. You'll ask God for it. If you don't, you won't. You will not consistently ask for something that you do not genuinely want. You know how I know that? I mean, I just, I mean, this is just true in my own life. Like nobody has, when, when someone I love gets cancer, nobody has to remind me, hey dude, you didn't pray for that. I don't ever skip a day. There's a good friend in my life. His name's Jim. He has stage four cancer and he's fighting it really, really hard. Nobody has to remind me to pray for Jim every day. I do. It never slips my mind. I n- it never like, oh man, I can't believe I forgot that. Or a, a little baby gets sick. There's a little baby. Two of my closest friends uh, are right now. Their little baby, baby Zeke. Uh, he he's got a bile duct. I'm praying for it every day. A bile duct blocked, and they're gonna have to do surgery on this tiny little baby. He's like a month and a half old. Nobody has to remind me to pray for baby Zeke. It just pops into my head throughout my day regularly. I pray for him in the morning, but I never stop. It just, he always pops into my head. Or if we really want somebody to get saved, it, I just, it, no one has to remind me. My, my neighbor Beth, me and my kids pray for my neighbor Beth every day because we want Beth. She's the best neighbor on the face of the planet, but she doesn't know Jesus. She's so close. She's come to church with us. She's, she's asked us questions about Jesus. I want her to know God. And I, nobody has to remind me to pray for her. We pray for Beth every day. So if we'll want unity, if we know that we want unity, will ask. And listen, the thing is, is Paul wants it for them, but he knows he's asking for something big. See, he's not just praying that they would get along, okay? That, that's nonsense, knowing who it is that he's praying for. These, Jews, these are Jews and non-Jews. This is like the weirdest group ever coming together. And he's praying that they would see themselves not as just like fellow churchgoers, like, hey, man, let them sit next to each other in church tomorrow. No, he's praying that they would be one family, that they would, not ignoring their differences, seeing their differences, be in love anyway, be the people of God. See, why does God do this? Because <laughs> he does. God, God told Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save all nations. This is about everybody. No matter what they look like, no matter what their background is, this is about everybody. This is about the world. I'm saving all of them. 
So why, why does God do that? That's so uncomfortable, right? If you came into a room like this and everybody was exactly the same, same exact background, looked all the same, cared about all the same things, that would be so comfortable and so easy, right? But God does not call for that whatsoever. He's like, hey, Jews, you guys have hated non-Jews for like thousands of years. Yeah, meet your Gentile brother in Christ. Worship in the same room together. <laughs> Why does he do that? Well, I think it's because that is, shows and demonstrates that we belong to God. Our unity is most beautiful and it is most visible when it is displayed through radical diversity. When we are just this beautiful room of a bunch of different types of people, it, it, the weirder, the better. It's better if it's unbelievable. It's better if it's unbelievable. It's better if someone comes into a room like this and be like, whoa, dang, these guys all are believing the same stuff? No way. Because you know what that does? Without saying a word, that preaches a gospel that welcomes anybody. They won't even know. They won't even have any words for it. They'll just come in and they'll just know, yeah, I think I, think I can be here. I think I actually belong here without anybody ever saying a word. They can just see. See, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, these beautiful words. He says, Jesus is our peace. And he's writing about Jews and Gentiles that have become one church. He says, for Jesus is our peace who has made us both one. He broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Now listen, pay very close attention to what he's saying here because there's a lot, this has been preached really, really wrong a bunch of different times. It would have been incredible if he would have said that God made them equal in Jesus. That's powerful, but that's not what he says. He said, I made them one. That means that, means that they are so connected that what happens to this person happens to this person. That means when, when you weep, someone who is, when you're sad about something, when you're hurting about something, somebody that is totally different from you is actually affected by that. You're one. The same way that your right hand is a part of the same body as your left hand. You're one. And so citizens, let me ask you, and I want you to talk about it tonight. And just think about it right now. Do you want this unity? Do you want it? And be honest. Answer that honestly. Because listen, if the answer is no, that's a good, honest answer. But maybe you want to want it. Start praying for that. Pray that, man, I, I, I want to want to be together like he's talking about. But if you do want it, like this sounds good, like this sounds beautiful, then ask for it, beg for it. Not just to tolerate one another, but love. Ask that citizens might be a group that looks like heaven in Revelation 7, 9, and 10. But here's the second reason that he prays. Probably the more important one, although that one I really like, is that what he's doing when he prays is he's saying God has to grant the unity. God must give unity. 
He uses that word, grace, that grace word. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you. Saying like, you can't do it. The kind of unity that Paul is calling for, only God can give. If they were to have unity, if we are to have unity, we need grace for that. We need grace for that. Because listen, division's too natural for us, man. We're too good at it. We're way too good at it. Our instincts, our default is to be like, you know what? I don't really get along with you. We don't really mesh that well. I don't think I want to be your friend anymore. I don't want to be a part of your group anymore. I let alone be your brother or sister. I don't really want any of that. You guys, God has to give this to us. We will never stumble our way toward unity. You're never going to just accidentally have it. I'm sorry. You won't. We, we, we can't be surprised when it doesn't come easily. We can't be surprised when it actually requires effort. That's why Paul describes God here as the God who gives endurance and encouragement. Why? Same thing I said last night. That means you're going to need it. That means you're going to be tired and exhausted and frustrated. That means somebody is going to break your heart. And you're going to need the God of endurance to give you more endurance. Ask any of these youth workers who have been doing this for any amount of time. Ask them about the time that a student broke their heart, poured into them, poured into them, went over and above for them, loved them, and then they just, for some reason, turned away from Jesus. Ask them. Ask them if they needed, with the time they needed God to be the God of endurance and encouragement. I guarantee you they have stories. We all do. But ultimately, we need to know, we need to know we need God for endurance because we don't want, you guys, all of our efforts and energy can only produce a, a, a shallow surface level unity that'll only kind of look like just kind of getting along and kind of tolerating one another. But that's not what we're wanting. That's not enough. The world has that, Right? Like you get a, a, a movie theater full of people wanting to see the same movie, they're all gonna be pumped when the stuff explodes or when they kiss at the end or whatever, right? The world has that. Or you go to like any sporting event back when they were legal, right? Like when you go to any sporting event, they can get along They can because they're all cheering for the same thing. The world has that. Tolerance and, and getting along and kind of coming around common things that we enjoy. The world has that. That's not what we're asking for. We're one. We're family. And so for that, we need God. And therefore, we have to pray. That's what Paul's demonstrating here to us. We have to pray. I don't want for my church, and I told them this when I preached this to them, and I'm going to say it to you. I don't want what we can make ourselves. Who cares, right? Like if we can put forth a bunch of energy, a bunch of blood, sweat, and tears, and we can make something that looks really kind of cool, and the outside world's pretty impressed with it, who cares? I want what God has to give. So let me ask you this again. Citizens, do you know that you need God for the unity that he has called us for.
called us to? Or are you settling for something smaller? The next question that I wanna ask of this prayer is probably the most obvious one is, well, what does the prayer for unity want? What does Paul actually ask for, right? In his prayer, in these words, what is he actually asked for, asking for? The first one, look what he says. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, and this is so cool, grant you to live or walk in such harmony with one another. The first thing that he prays for is that unity would be experienced, that we would actually not, not just like have it and look at it and, look and see like, hey, man, that's pretty nice, but that we would actually feel it, like we would live in it. He says that later on in the verse when he says um, that you would live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus that together you may with one voice, that's like outwardly, be able to do it. But then also he says in such harmony, that's inward. That's, that's like thinking. It's another word for mind. So you have this full thing of unity, inward and outward experienced unity. This means that unity is not stagnant. It doesn't just like you just get it and it's over, done deal. He's saying you actually live in it. That when you come to to youth group on Wednesday nights or on on Sunday mornings, when you guys come together, it's you step into it and it's lived out and you feel it and you know it. That same picture that I was saying earlier, when you bring your friend to it, you're just like, listen, I know, like, like Sam's gonna say some really cool stuff, but it honestly won't matter as much as when you step in there, you will know, you'll feel it. You're stepping into a place that offers you eternal life and you'll know it from the moment that you step in the room. See, people that are, what, what our unity is, is people that are not supposed to be together living together in harmony. People that are supposed to be enemies coming together as family. See, like when when we have like a bunch of different people in the room and like people are like, oh man, that's pretty cool. Like over there, like, hey man, look at that guy that's different than me over there. That's cool. We're in the same room together. Like that's cool. And that's like a pretty good start. It's just not enough right? For, for Jews and Gentiles to be in the same room is cool. It's just that's not what he's talking about. Paul refuses to settle for this. He prays that their lives would be so intertwined with one another that they would actually experience and feel and live out the unity. What he is calling for, friends, is a, a, a deep friendship, family diversity, That's what he's calling for, a unity that is lived out together as family, because that's what we are. We're family. Let me tell you two quick stories from people in my church, my favorite. They sit up to the right of me. Uh, One of them is uh, a a very influential elder in my church. Uh, He's a millionaire. Okay, I wouldn't say this in my church because he would hate for me to say that, but he's a millionaire. And he's super generous. He loves our church. He loves God. He's incredibly awesome. I love this guy. Him and his wife have mentored this couple in our church who are recovering addicts, alcoholics. They've ruined their lives with drugs and alcohol in the past. But they came to faith in Jesus. And they love each other. They'll like spend holidays with one another 
and their stories could not be more different. And they sit together in church. They worship the same God together, not as like, oh, that's cool that we sit together and then they like sanitize themselves off and go wash their clothes. They're friends. Okay, but that's not, that, that, that's not my best story. You wanna hear my best story? My friend John got saved in our church a number of years ago, about maybe, maybe 12 years ago. Super awesome guy. I love this dude. Um, and my associate pastor, who's also my best friend, his name's Daniel, um, I should have had a picture of Daniel. That'd be cool. Um, but but he, uh, Daniel's an African-American. He's a black man. And John, one time, walked up to Daniel, and they have a lot in common. They, they, uh, they love baseball. They love sports. And they started hanging out, and Daniel kind of started mentoring John a little bit. And John, one time, in this, the most beautiful moment of honesty, told Daniel, I, I just want you to know, I've never had, I've never had a black man for a friend. I've never been close, uh, and, he, and it's like the cutest thing, but he goes, I, I just, I didn't, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to say the wrong thing. If I say the wrong thing, I just want you to know I'm really sorry, and I'm not meaning to do that on purpose. And John said that to him. Fast forward that relationship now, about five, six years, Daniel's kids called John Uncle John. And him and his wife, Kim, are John, Uncle John and Auntie Kim, and they watch those little girls. And they, they, when they see him, they run and they jump into his arms. That's what I'm talking about. That's the unity that God expects of his people. That's more beautiful than anything else the world could create. The world would tell John, no, nah, that's too awkward. That's too uncomfortable. You stay away from that relationship because John had his entire life until he came to Christ. That's the picture that we have here. So citizens, do you live together, live, walk, experience together in unity? And if not, what would it take for this to happen here, and why would we ever settle for less? But the next two things, he says, he says that you would live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. He prays that Christ would be followed by this church, that Christ would be followed. And here what he does is he prays that Christ would be at the center of our unity that Jesus' work as well as Jesus' example, that's what he means, in accord with Christ, all that Christ is, his finished work at the cross, and his life and his example to us as his followers. So this kind of takes two steps. The first is we believe the gospel. The second is we live out the gospel. That's in accord with Christ Jesus, that we believe and trust what Jesus did for us and then we would love and care about what Jesus loves and cares about. So the first, believe the gospel. Do you believe the gospel? Man, I'm inviting you every night, and I do this every Sunday. Because listen, sometimes it takes us a number of times to be told. And I know that. I am evidence of that. I have people share the gospel with me a, a lot, a, a million times before I place my faith in Jesus. Maybe you're similar. Tonight, could you hear me just say, Jesus Christ came into the world to save and rescue and forgive sinners. And that's what bonds us together is 
all of us have fallen short and needed Jesus. And tonight, friend, if you would trust him right now, if you would join in with those of us who needed to be forgiven of our sins, if you would trust him, he will give you his life forever and he will give you his right relationship with God right now. He'll swap it. Your sin, he'll put on his shoulders at the cross, finished, done. He'll take his righteousness off of him, place it on you forever. Done deal, saved. Would you trust in Jesus tonight? That's the first thing that he means in accord with Christ Jesus, that we would believe the gospel. But the second is that we would live out the gospel that that would be what we kind of circle and huddle around when it comes to our unity. Because we're always gonna be different. This doesn't mean that we believe like, that that we have all the same opinions about stuff. That's not what it means at all. That we all like the same movies, that we all listen to the same music, that we all dress the same, that we all vote the same. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that we come around and agree on Jesus and what Jesus loves and what Jesus cares about because our belief in Christ doesn't just save us, it changes us. And we do everything differently now because we belong to Jesus. That's what unifies us. Third one, last one, he prays that God would get all the glory, that God would be glorified. And this seems to be on the forefront of his mind. This is actually where we'll end tomorrow night as well. This seems to be what Paul is saying, is that our unity glorifies God in a big, powerful way. And this matters, right? The point I wanna make to you guys tonight is this, and I wanna leave you with this, and maybe this could be like, I know I said a lot of other things, (laughs) but... Maybe this is the thing you talk about and think about the most. See, our unity, your unity, citizens, will undoubtedly be beautiful and attractive to the outside world. It will. It will. Like, it absolutely will, especially in the divided world we find ourselves in. But that is not primarily Paul's point or purpose in praying for their unity. That's secondary, okay? Us being together, being beautiful to others, that we might be a good example of unity, that's, that's amazing, but that's secondary to Paul. He is praying for unity because he wants them to be a church that brings glory to God, and that matters most. And so that goes to teach us something here. If we care about the glory of God, we will care about being together. I need you to know that. It's not an optional thing. When Paul hangs unity on a thing that brings glory to God, we don't say, well, I guess I can do that if I feel like it. No, this theme of together matters because this theme of together brings honor and glory to God. And so, citizens, if you want real unity, you gotta pray for it. You gotta pray for it. 
And I think our prayers for unity matter more than anything else right now. So tonight, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that. Tonight, we're gonna pray right now. And maybe this is the first time you have ever prayed and asked the Lord to bring unity. And I'm gonna ask you to do it tonight. I'm gonna actually ask you right now, guys, if you wanna throw the lights down again, that'd be sweet. And I wanna just invite you guys to bow your head right where you at, right where you are at right now. And I want you to pray to the Lord for unity. And, I, and maybe I'll give you a couple of different directions to go with that. Pray for the world right now. It's the most divided, hostile world, divided world that, that I've ever seen in my lifetime. Many, many people older than me would probably say similar things. Pray for the world. But I want you, even if you pray for your church and you pray for your town and you pray for stuff like that, but by the time you're done, I want you to end up very specific. Pray for this youth group, this group of citizens, this group that you guys would be so committed to this, that God would so bless your efforts in this, that he would draw so many more people to himself, so many more students to himself through this ministry in the months and years to come. So could you guys do that? Could you spend some time? And, and I know, like, we don't have words. Maybe look at the words in the, the verse. He, he just wants them to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus to the glory of God. Start there. Pray those things, all right? And then maybe pray for the kids sitting across the way from you and be like, man, you know what? I'm family with that kid. I probably need to get to know them better. I'm family with that, you know, the older kids. I'm family with those young kids. Maybe I need to go get to know them better. And maybe I, tolerance isn't the goal, but maybe love is. And I need to go spend some time with them. Pray for it. Pray for it. Pray like you want it and pray like you know that God must give it. Let's pray.